Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Karen Allport, a member of the City Club Board of Directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, journalist and co-author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics, Selena Zito. President Donald J. Trump's rapid political rise and subsequent election to the presidency while a surprise to many political experts and polls, was a welcome change for the millions of Americans who identified with his message. Since the election, many journalists, political leaders, and citizens have struggled in identifying and understanding the views of the Trump voters and assessing their power and influence in shaping the presidency and the American politics as a whole. Arguably, no one understands these voters better than our speaker today. Ms. Cito covered President Trump's campaign extensively leading up to the 2016 election, interviewing voters and predicting his win before anyone saw it coming. In a piece for The Atlantic, she summed up President Trump's 2016 presidential campaign with this now noteworthy sentence. The press takes him literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. So who are the Trump voters? And what effect are they really having on the future of American politics? The answer to those questions is what Ms. Zito and her co-author, Brad Todd, aim to cover in the writing of their book, The Great, Re the Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. In doing research, the two traveled more than 27,000 miles to interview 300 Trump voters in 10 swing counties. Those interviewed spanned a variety of careers, income brackets, education levels, and party allegiances, painting a more diverse picture of those who voted for Trump than one might expect. We'll hear more about that today. Ms. Zito was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and has a long career as a political reporter. She spent 11 years at the Pit Pittsburgh Tribune Review and is currently a reporter for the New York Post and the Washington Examiner, Examiner and as well as a CNN political analyst. Over her career, she's interviewed every U.S. president and vice president since 1992 as well as all 22 candidates on both sides of the aisle who ran for president in 2016. In addition, she's a board member of the Center for Media and Public Policy at the Heritage Foundation and has worked for the campaigns of George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Rick Santorum 
and was on the staff of the U.S. of U.S. Senator Arlen Specter. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming today's speaker, Ms. Selena Zito. Hey, Cleveland. <laughs> you'll, you'll forgive my Pittsburgh allegiance, right? <laughs> I love Cleveland. I wrote a great story about you guys a couple years ago. I came up here about a year before the, um, the RNC convention. I thought it was so incredible that you were able to attract a convention, and I thought that your city really hosted an amazing event. So you guys should applaud yourself for, uh, for a great job that you did. You were a great host city for the entire country to see. So before I start talking about the Great Revolt, I think I should begin at the beginning where I first noticed um, things, something was going on a little bit different in the country. It was June, June, the end of June in 2006. And let me set the stage a little bit. Uh, George Bush is president. Uh, I believe the Senate is split at that moment, 50-50, but the Republicans had had the majority for a while up until that point, and uh, that the Republicans have held, hold the house, majority in the House. And they've held it since 1994. And so I go to this American Legion uh, meeting, and you know, no one was sort of understanding that the Republicans might lose the majority that, that year. I, I, I keep remembering Carl Rove saying to me, uh, well, you know, our, we have voter vault. Our, our, our voters are going to show up. And I kept saying, yes, they are going to show up, but I don't think they're voting for your guys. Uh, and, and so I, and, and, but, you know, I wasn't positive. So I walked into this VFW and, you know, there's Jason Altmaier, a former congressman, but, you know, a candidate for Congress, a Democrat, a moderate Democrat running for uh, a house seat in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, one that hugs the sort of Eastern Ohio border, the, you know, deep in Appalachia, but also had some sub suburban districts too. So there was a, there's a great mix of, of you know, sort of diversity of incomes in this, in this district. And, you know, this was Melissa Hart's seat, Republican, she's Italian, everybody thought of her as their like, granddaughter, you know, she was beloved, but her party wasn't. And that became incredibly ed evident as I sat there and listened to uh, a, a bunch of community members. There were about 60 to 80 people. Um, uh, uh, listened to uh, Jason Altmaier, and I talked to them afterwards. And while they still loved Melissa Hart, uh, they were unhappy with the establishment. And I thought that was really interesting because typically incumbents hold their seats. Typically, people weren't willing to, you know, switch sides. But the Democrats had done something really brilliant. They had pushed uh, to their grassroots voters these sort of moderate candidates that fit their districts rather than fit where the party was going. And by November, the Democrats had won, and they had won hugely. And they had pulled, they had pulled together this loose coalition that wasn't really wedded to the Democratic Party, but it was wedded to their community. And they believed that their community wasn't being represented in, in Washington. 
And, and a lot of experts missed that because they just sort of flew in to these areas where these swing districts existed, um, interviewed people and left and, and thought they understood, eh, the Republicans are probably going to hold on to this. But I approach uh, all my reporting a little different, a little differently than maybe a big national news um, entity does. Um, I don't take highways. I don't take um, interstates because as, as I was driving up here from Pittsburgh, if I was going to be covering something that was happening in Cleveland, I would have never taken 80 or 480 or whatever the heck I was on. Um, I would have maybe taken seven or 14 or you know taken 19 up and went across six. Why? Because when you take those back roads, you're, you're seeing how communities change. You see how suburbs are doing, how exurbs are doing, how, how rural areas are doing. All those things contribute to how a, a city is doing. That's part of the city. It's not, it's not just the, you know, the zip code in, in the town, it's the surrounding areas. And, and so because I approach reporting that way, it's almost like living in a town. I also never stay in a hotel. I always stay in a bed and breakfast. So that the first person I meet is a small business type person in town. And so, and they know where all the bodies are buried. Like, they know all the gossip. And then the second thing I try to do is, you know, go to church, go to a high school basketball game, go to a soccer game, go to a football game, um, you know, um, hang out downtown, go to a restaurant that's been in the same family for several generations. Because then you sort of understand what happened before is intrinsically tied to what's going to happen next. And you give more of a sense of community. Fast forward to 2008. Uh, President Obama and John McCain are running, and um, both of them, despite uh, President Obama's newness to the establishment world, were both of the same establishment ilk. And even though I thought that President Obama might not win because of the people that I talked to in the areas, um, sort of like Luzerne County, uh, Pennsylvania, Erie, Pennsylvania, Ashtabula County, Stark County. Um, they, they weren't, he didn't take them over the top. He was too much like an extension of President Bush. And they were willing to do something new and exciting. And that's what President Obama offered. 2010, well, I, I can remember this distinctly. 2009, I'm standing next to, I'm going to forget his first name, but his last name was Barron. He was a uh, congressman, Democratic congressman from Indiana. And I was standing next to him during the health care um, vote. And I had been watching people who had voted for President Obama and had voted for Democrats in 2006 start to slide away because they thought too many big things were happening. Uh, TARP, uh, even cash for clunkers and bailouts. They believed that that's not what they bought into when they gave up the Republicans to vote for the Democrats. Now, I, I remember standing there next to him on Capitol Hill and, and he had just made the vote and I said, y'all are gonna lose this in, in a couple months. And he's like, no, 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 we're fine. This is what everybody wants. I'm like, no, I, I think you need to go out and listen to people. This is too big and too fast. And I went out and I, I honed in on areas that I thought 
would swing based on the economic issues that were going on in those towns and I, I drove all again all across the country my, my 14 year old Jeep had 400,000 miles on it I feel like Jeep should give me my own car right right I keep trying they're, they're not they're, they're, there's nothing there so uh, and and I was right including down to uh, Columbiana County um, with Bill Johnson. Nobody thought he was going to beat, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name, uh, down, Wilson, Charlie Wilson. Not that Charlie Wilson, the other Char Charlie Wilson. Uh, nobody thought that, that, anybody, that, that, that he was going to beat him because that had been such a ruby, such a deep blue part of Ohio. But people were unsatisfied. They thought, we keep sending you to Washington to do something and you keep still aren't listening to why we sent you there and and so they threw the Democrats out now trust me it's not because they like the Republicans more they didn't but the Democrats had proven once again it, it shocked me that it's four years later it's four years after you you threw the Republicans out and the Democrats couldn't figure out that maybe they needed to listen to what people were saying but no, they didn't. Sort of what happens in Washington is a company town, and everybody, Republicans and Democrats, sort of all start to think alike. Uh, same thing in 2014. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember, I was driving home from Kansas covering the governor and Senate race, and I knew the Republicans were going to win, and they were going to win big. But I remember a reporter doing a story saying, oh, Kansas is gone for the Democrats. I'm like, no, it's not. I was just there. You're sitting in Washington. How do you know this? Aren't you listening to people? Like, you know, that, that, that was very frustrating to me. So fast forward to August of 2015, and Donald Trump comes down the elevator, a gold elevator, okay? In between 2006 and 2015, several indicators to me told me something big was going to happen. We had two big wave election cycles where 50, 60, 70 people lost seats back and forth. We had a recession and we're in the middle of an industrial technological revolution. Well, if anybody knows a little bit about history, we've done that before. It was called the 1890s. <laughs> and we had seats that swung between 100 uh, in, in either direction for either parties. And then what did we have? William Jennings Bryant and William McKinley. Also, we had Industrial Revolution and we had the Great Panic of 1890, 1890. So, while history doesn't always repeat itself, there is echoes that tell us something, pay attention, something is going on. So, I understood that there this populist coalition was possible, but when I looked at the, the, the the dozen at that point, the dozen or so Republicans that, um, that had already announced that they were running, and I thought, well, that's not going to do it. Um, I mean, these guys are establishment, this, including uh, Carly Fiorino. These are establishment figures that are essentially uh, creatures of not just Washington, but also creatures of sort of the super zip codes that control most of the important things that happen in our culture. And the super zip codes are, are typically um, uh, I-95 and I-5 and I on either coast, uh, with a couple um, exceptions in the middle, like um, uh, Chicago. And so 
when he came down there and on that gold elevator, and I'm thinking, wait, we're in the middle of this populace. There's this, something's going on out here. And he's going to run a guy with gold on the top of his building with his name. And, and he lives in Manhattan. But that was the last time I doubted his ability. When I, after that, after that moment, I went to, to Iowa and I started talking to voters for the caucuses. So this is in the fall of 2015. The caucus is in um, January of 2016. And, and voters would say, and, and if you know anything about Iowa, every vote, it's like 100% evangelical, right? I mean, this is a very um, conservative, uh, very um, relig religious sort of uh, electorate. And so they would say things like, well, we, we really like Ben Carson. He shares our values. You know, he, he's a, a man who he has a religiosity and it's, it's important. Um, we also, you know, sort of really like Bobby Jindal. You know, he, same thing. Ted Cruz, um, we don't like him all the time, but we think that he could, you know, do the things that we want him to do. But Donald Trump, he's kind of a winner. He's actually the guy that would go up there and, and stand up for our values in, in, in a way that nobody else will. He's the one that would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hillary. And while he did not win Iowa, if you go back and look at those numbers, you could have, you could have predicted the day after Iowa that he was going to win based on just on the numbers from that, from that, um, from that race. And of course, he went on and won New Hampshire and South Carolina, and it was, it was pretty much over. Fast forward to April of 2016. I'm covering the, we, and we never have a contested primary. I, I actually I should talk about your primary in Ohio. Um, John Kasich won handily, but what didn't he win? The Mahoning Valley. That should have been a huge indicator to everyone. The numbers that turned out in that, in that, in that strip um, going down the coast of Pennsylvania was very, very telling because those are large numbers that, that turned out for him. And, and a lot of people crossed over from the Democratic Party and voted, and voted for him. Fast forward to April, Pennsylvania, we never, ever have. <laughs> we never have a competitive primary. By the time it gets to Pennsylvania, it's pretty much over. Well, Ted Cruz hadn't dropped out, and neither had John Kasich. Donald Trump won every single county in my state. He, I'm going to forget the exact number. I think it was 62,000, but I could be wrong. It might be more. 62,000 people. Let's just go with that number. I know it's not less than that. Um, changed parties affiliation from Democrat to Republican just to vote in in that primary. Now, there might be a couple people doing it for, you know, nefarious reasons. You know, they, they, they think that he's going to be the worst candidate for the Republicans. And, and the night before the election, I will never forget this. I went to the, uh, the farm show complex in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Has anybody ever been there in Harrisburg? Yeah. It's huge, right? It's like huge. It's filled with 25,000 people. And you know what's outside? an additional 15 to 20,000 more people. And they were happy. They were happy they weren't even in there. They were just happy to be there. One of the things uh, I, I did observe before, before I finish um, how I understood this election 
One of the things I did observe that I think a lot of you may have missed, anybody in here wake up the day after the election completely shocked he won? Okay, all. <laughs> so when you're sitting at home, and you, did anybody here go to a Trump rally? Okay. So, okay, thank you. So when you watched a Trump rally at home, here's what you saw. He had seven or eight quotes of the most ridiculous things he ever said. Then you saw, no matter what channel you put on, whether it was cable or national news networks or even the local if they had a B-roll, you saw the most ridiculous people you ever saw in your life. They were either angry or dressed really weird or saying really ridiculous things. But they were the same three people in, in, <laughs> at, at, from that, that one rally. I go to a rally, and it's a completely different thing. I go to a rally, not because you know I, I see what I want to see, but because I actually see what's happening. So most reporters, and this is just the way the, the, that national news is constructed, I would say 90% of reporters all fly in together on the same airplane. They stay at the same Marriott by the airport, they get their points, and they all get on the same bus that takes them into the event when they don't go on until five minutes before he goes on. So we're all, you know, we're all at these like tables, right? And we're typing up and I'm, I'm, I'm in the same cage too eventually, but I got there in a different way. And they're all, you know, typing it, you know, getting ready to type it up. And you know, you, you're on deadline, you've got to write a story, you've got to, or you, or you've got to you know, go on air. Well, they all see, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget watching this on like multiple channels the same weird person, they all have that same one weird person in the show. It's, on the, it's in, in everybody's package. And the same seven ridiculous quotes that he said were also in the same package. And you're at home saying, there ain't no way this dude is winning. These people are weird. He's weird. This is weird. Here's what I saw. I would go to a town maybe two or three days before a rally, as long as time allowed. Sometimes they were at... Um, they were just announced overnight. But for the most part, I, was, I had the uh, flexibility to be able to get there two or three days ahead of time. I hang out in town. I get to know the people. I find out what's going on. And then I go to the rally probably four or five hours before it begins. It's a tailgate party. These people are happy. Most of them, 99% of them, are families. They're with their kids. They're with their parents. They take those, you know, folding chairs that you, you, you see at like a soccer game or a football game. Some people even had hibachis. Okay, they were having fun. You missed something incredibly joyful. You also missed 98% of the speech. And where he talked about their community, where he talked about economic struggles, where he talked about cultural issues that, 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 that don't jive with their way of life. And, and, and he talked about making America great again. Most people looked at that and, and said, and, and I work for CNN, I see it all the time. They call it racist, they call it misogynistic, um, dog whistle, I don't know what that means, I still have, have no idea what dog whistle means. And, and, and backwards thinking. What they missed is, and, and I saw this in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, to them, that was a very forward-looking message. That was about bringing people together. That was aspirational. Americans, whether they have been here for two weeks or two, three, four, five, nine generations, 
love to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's what they saw with that message. It's a forward-looking message. Unfortunately, Mrs. Clinton's message was more about her resume. And it didn't, she didn't ask for their vote. She told them to vote for her. That's a big difference. Showing up in Ashtabula County, where no presidential candidate has been since 1960, and saying, I want your vote, that meant something. In July of 2016, I drove all 67 counties of Pennsylvania. I, after I came in, I did a lot of reporting, but I also did a lot of observing. And I, under, and I had looked at my state's voting record since 1996, since Bill Clinton. And the state had become 0.4% more Republican every presidential race. People weren't paying attention to that. They just looked at the end results. They said, oh, Democrat won, blue state. They didn't notice the slow erosion that had been happening. President Obama, Obama won, um, or President Clinton won 28 counties. President Obama won 12. That, that's, that, the, the, the numbers are telling you a story if you are willing to open your mind and listen to them and to step away from your idea of what you think wants to happen to what is really happening. So I identified 10 counties that, uh, and two of them, three of them, three of them had voted for Obama twice. Uh, and, and I said, and in my head, this was based on interviewing people in these counties, but also there was a visual aspect to it. There were signs everywhere, and I, my, my co-author always says, Selena, signs don't vote. Like, I know they don't vote, but I don't know if you saw this around here. I certainly saw this in parts of Ohio. Um, people vote. People made homemade signs. That's a completely different level of intensity and support. And I saw houses painted with Trump on the side. I saw barns. I even saw a horse with Trump <laughs> painted on the side. I kid you not. And I came home, and I'm like, okay, something, something, we need to pay attention to this. This isn't just, you know, going down to the local Republican place and getting the, you know, the campaign sign that they put out and put in your yard. This is like a, a whole different level of support. And it was also in areas that would have never supported a Republican. And I never saw a Hillary sign. I mean, never, ever, in places that she should have had it. Again, signs don't vote, but combine that with the trajectory that Pennsylvania had been on, interviews, anecdotal interviews with people. I, I looked at these 10 counties and I said, look, if just 2,000 more people show up in each of these 10 counties, no matter what happens in Philadelphia, no matter whether Mrs. Clinton uh, reaches or exceeds President Obama's numbers, if just 2,000 more people show up in these 10 counties, he's going to win by a hair. And if Pennsylvania is gone, that means North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa and Ohio are gone. Why? Because Pennsylvania is five points more democratic than all of those states. As you can imagine, social media went a little bit crazy. <laughs> I was accused of being a Trump supporter. I'm not. I don't vote in elections that I cover. 
I was uh, accused of being, um, you know, a sympathizer. No, I just listen to people. And sometimes that's, that's hard, and sometimes that becomes your greatest challenge because sometimes people are telling you things that you don't know that, you know, you don't understand why they're, they're, they're making these decisions. In uh, September 19th of 2016, my newspaper um, went through a change and I took a buyout. It became evident that it was time for me to leave. If anybody, is anybody here a news person? Okay, as you know, that's heartbreaking. Like, newsrooms are one of the most heartbreaking places. I mean, one of the most, you know, you go through a lot of, of tragedies together. You go through, you cover a lot of things together and you pull together over different beats. So I, I'm literally, this is, the, this is one of three times I weep at the end of the story and then we'll, we'll, we'll take questions. So I'm walking out of the newsroom just like crying and I get a text from the campaign, the Pennsylvania campaign manager. <laughs> Um, for Trump and said, hey, you have an interview with Donald Trump tomorrow. And I'm like, inside my head, I'm like, hey, I don't have a job. <laughs> I don't have anywhere to take my story. I called the New York Times. They politely said no. I called the Washington Post. I think I called BuzzFeed. Um, everybody said no. Uh, eventually, The Atlantic took my interview. Uh, and I interviewed Mr. Trump uh, in Pittsburgh, in my hometown. It was supposed to be 10 minutes long. I think it was like an hour and 15 minutes long. Uh, it was a really interesting interview, but the thing that stood out to everyone was that line about seriously and literally. But one of the things I really noted, one of the things that struck me um, was that he, uh, he really connected with people, um, not, not the, the people with the money, not the, not the big CEOs, but when he was walking backstage, and he took me with him all around the backstage, and people connected with him in a way that I hadn't seen since Bill Clinton. And it was sort of really, really interesting to me. And he did with them. And he had, you know, this wasn't a, you know, sort of a show thing. I didn't have the recorder on. I didn't have a camera going. This was genuine. And I, I, that was an observation that I had not um, been able to assess before that moment because I've only ever seen him on the stage. Uh, so for the next uh, six or seven weeks, I worked for four different news organizations, writing four different stories every day, seven days a week, while traveling all across the country, and not making any money at all. But I wanted to, I wanted to finish this out. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to see this through. Uh, I had worked, I, I had detected this ten years earlier. I wanted to see what happened. Uh, on second time I cried. Um, on the night before the election, it's a Monday night, I am on the tarmac in Pittsburgh and I'm interviewing Mike Pence. And I write the story. I don't even remember who I filed it for. And I go home and I sit down on my stoop. Do people say stoop around here? Okay, thank God. I sit down on my friend's stoop and I just weep because I think, I just interviewed the next vice president of the country. I don't have a job tomorrow. That's real. It felt very weird to me. The next day, I get up. Um, I I have one assignment left. It's for the New York Post, and I'm covering election night. But they were like, when I called them to tell them where I was going to be, they were like, "Eh, I don't think he's going to win. You don't have to go." I'm like, "Oh no, he's winning. I'm going to go." And they're like, "Okay. Well, if he doesn't win, we're not using the story." Which then, of course, meant I wasn't getting paid. But it didn't matter. 
I understand. I knew what I was going to watch. I was focusing on Pennsylvania, not just because I live there, not just because I'm sitting in Pittsburgh and writing the story at an election night celebration, but because I knew, as I told you before, if Pennsylvania goes, all the rest of these states go. And he wins. So about 8.45, all the other reporters, um, there, there was a bunch of national reporters there, all the other reporters are focusing on, on, on Philadelphia. And, and she exceeded Barack Obama's numbers in Philadelphia. Uh, that's something that people don't seem to remember. Uh, but I wasn't watching that. I was watching my 10 counties. And as I'm watching their numbers come in, I'm like, it's over. I think at 8.47, I filed my story. I knew it was over. And by the way, it was on the front page. <laughs> the story they were not going to take was on the front page. The next day, I got up late because, of course, you know, I was up till 5 in the morning. I, and, and there's a bakery next door to my house. It's a French bakery. I'm a very good baker, but I've never made anything French. But I had to get a job. Healthcare's running out. I don't have any more freelancing left. Everybody had gotten rid of me. Rid of me. My job was up until that last story. So I'm walking down the street to the French bakery, convinced they're going to hire me because I had seen a sign that said that they were looking for a baker. I'm like, I can do this. Uh, and as so I'm walking down, I get a call from CNN. And they said, hey, Selena, can you be on Jake Tapper today? And I said, sure, but can you tell me what the subject matter is? Typically, they email it to you, but I was convinced I was going to be in the middle of a very robust uh, interview process at the bakery and wouldn't be able to look at the email. <laughs> That's my, that's my, that's how I think. And um, they're like, oh, easy, the subject's you. And of course, being Catholic, I'm like, oh no, what did I do wrong? What did I, <laughs> yeah, I immediately think I'm in trouble. And, and they said, oh no, no, you're the only reporter that got this right and stuck with it. We'd like to have you on. And uh, we'd like to hire you. And I just sat down again and cried on the sidewalk. I'm not kidding. Because in that, mor that morning when I woke up, I felt very much like a lot of Trump voters. I was 57 years old, my industry had died, and nobody wanted me anymore. I was probably going to have to work two jobs, at least, and still probably make you know, less than or a half of what I used to make, which, by the way, isn't a lot. You're in the newspaper industry. We don't make a lot of money. We do it because we love it. And so that, that is my story. Now, how I got to the Great Revolt. One of the things that really, really frustrated me during this election, but I hadn't had the time to really jive into, was this, this idea that the Trump voter is just this one kind of person. They're white, they're old, they're dumb, and they're racist. And if you don't think you don't, they, people don't still think that, Watch every story about Roseanne in the past few days. Oh, she's racist. She was a Trump supporter on her show. Trump supporters watched her show. They're racist. Prove my point. That doesn't prove a point. We're still sort of stuck in this, we're still sort of stuck on November 8th, 2016. And we have this coalition, this conservative populist coalition. They're, they're, they're not Republican. Uh, John Boehner was right yesterday when he said this isn't the Republican Party anymore. But I would differ with him in saying it's the Trump Party because I believe that this, this coalition is going to continue on long after he's done. The problem is we're still not listening to it. 
And it's not going to just impact elections and the ballot box, but it's impacting other things as well. Uh, it, look at the NFL. I mean, where are they located? Park Avenue. They should be in Canton, Ohio. They have never handled their problem in a, in a smart way. Look at Dick's Sporting Goods. Their numbers are way down because they decided to pick a side. And people, people that are part of this coalition aren't the type of people that go out and protest, but they are the type of people who, who make their voices known through their pocketbook. So uh, the, I would encourage people to read The Great Revolt. It's not for Republicans. It's not for Democrats. It's for everyone. It's how this coalition is impacting not just the ballot box, uh, but also be far, far more frontiers than you can even imagine. And they're not the stereotype that you believe in it. Yes, of course, there's always a grain of truth in a st stereotype. And there's always a certain percentage. But it's not all. And they're all hiding in plain sight. Today we're enjoying a forum with Selena Zito, journalist and co-author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. May we have the first question, please? First of all, let me just say I misunderstood your question. I'm not a news person. I follow the news quite closely. Right? Uh, but, um, I'm sorry. You said you were doing that. <laughs> I feel I, very I just wanted, Are you in therapy? <laughs> Not yet. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, what sort of immigration reform do you think the public really would like to see? Because I'm seeing instances where people might say um, the undocumented should be sent back. But on a local level, if they know someone who's working hard, who's undocumented, like in Madison, Ohio, I think it was, they'll rally behind him. So uh, part of the Great Revolt is that we did an extensive survey of voters uh, of, the, of the 10 counties that we picked for the book. Every, every county that we picked in Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa uh, voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. Uh, so we did, we did a, a, an extensive survey of, of the voters. And so the three top things that are most important to voters are Social Security, maintaining and preserving Social Security and Medicare, uh, the economy and bringing back jobs, and um, uh, job growth. So it's all very economic. And it was pretty much split in three ways. And it's all outlined in the book. We're very nerdy. There's an appendix, so you can look everything up. Uh, but uh, immigration, 7%. That's one of the things that immigration actually has, as far as their concerns. Immigration is actually more popular and supportive of, of the people that are already here are much more popular than I think that my profession lets you believe. But security is very important. National security, absolutely. But I, I, I never found one person that wants to send someone home that was undocumented. You know, unless of course they were, you know, like a murderer or something like that. But most people, most people are able to step back and look at their own family and what they would do if they were living in a country that was oppressive or violent or had no opportunity. And they can imagine themselves 
taking those risks and taking their children across a border. Uh, I think we give we don't give people enough credit. Um, yeah. So yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Hey, my name is Gerwin. Um, I formerly <clears throat> worked in the Obama White House and worked on international affairs and also uh, was his national field coordinator for his reelection campaign. And I agree with a lot of what you said, but I would also perhaps disagree and want to get your thoughts on some things. <clears throat> you know, mainly, I, I agree with you that not all Trump voters are the caricature that you see on TV. Right, they're not all racist. Uh, they're not all hateful people. Uh, I, I started a nonprofit that reached out to a lot of Trump voters and very successfully on the grounds of race and religion and very successfully was able to have very productive, meaningful, life-changing conversations that, that like move the dial. Uh, and today, you know, I work in my family business and I pretty much only deal with people that voted for Trump. Uh, which, you know, when I was in the White House, I never thought that I would be in that situation. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> nonetheless, you know, even my friends, who I now have many that voted for Trump, um, and I get them into a space where I can make them feel comfortable, and I, this is not just one person or two people. Like, anecdotally, I could say it's quite a large number of these people. Uh, and a lot of my friends who are pollsters who share polling results with me, they're... It, it, I feel like there is a little bit of glorification of, of, of his campaign that you're doing in terms of how he reached out to people, uh, at least in how you articulated it. Because when I talk to my, f oh, sorry, I'm trying to get to it. Uh, when I, when I, uh, and this, I'll get to the question right now. I'm sorry for filibustering. Uh, you did. Spend, spend a you long can tell he worked in the White House. <laughs> spend a lot of time in DC. Uh, anyway, uh, the question is, you know, there is a lot of racial anxiety that I sense with them, not racism. Or racial anxiety and well that has a lot to do with people I think I don't know if you guys agree with me but I think that my profession uh, tends to pit people against each other right but I think he also did the same thing well he may have but you need to read the book um, because <laughs> the great revolt um, <laughs> no not mainly because I think you would see a, uh, um, I really get into their stories and their lives and and I, I don't I don't think anybody's glorified in the book and or or he's got this is not a book about Donald Trump not at all this is a book about them and this is a book about their their communities you know a lot of people tend to jump to the conclusion and make the assessment and and call it national their their views nationalistic or nationalism uh, I I would argue if you actually listen to people it's localism. Let's think about this for a while. Anybody here ever been to Whole Foods? Okay. When you go there, isn't it awesome when you go to Whole Foods and there's like you can buy your cantaloupe and you can see exactly where it came from and it's really important to you to buy your cantaloupe or your green pepper or your onions like 30 miles from your house because you know you're 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 putting money back into the community. It's no, it's no different kind of localism. Uh, that that a lot of these uh, supporters felt they wanted their community. It was more about this election was about them. It was not about Donald Trump. This, he was just a result of it. But this is about their communities thriving and getting better. Hi, and Hi. thank you for your talk. Um, I you obviously have a lot of experience and have seen the 
huge swings in the elections. What do you think is going to happen this year in the midterm election? So in midterm elections, outside of, I think it was 74 in 2002, and those were, um, they had a lot to do with wars. Um, presidents have lost seats, in House seats, in the midterm elections. That's typically because the party out of power is, is more energized. In particular, people who maybe didn't show up in the last election, and they're like, oh, I gotta make up for what I didn't do, right? Um, or, oh dear God, I can't stand this person. And, and so they, they, you know, they're the most energized. Uh, but I, I, I have been skeptical of a blue wave for a couple of reasons. I, yes, I believe that the Democrats are gonna um, win seats. I think the Republicans have had 42 retirements as opposed to the Democrats having only 17. Uh, but uh, here's where my skepticism lies. Uh, if the Democrats go too far left from the districts they represent, then they're going to sort of nullify those chances of instead of getting 60 seats, maybe they only get 15 seats or 20 seats. Uh, they need 24, I believe, uh, to, uh, to gain the majority. But so that's my skepticism. I'm not. I'm not sure yet. I. I, I and and independent voters uh, also tend to not make up their mind until the last two weeks. So I. I. I don't feel a wave coming yet. That doesn't mean there isn't one. I just haven't detected it yet. I've been busy with a book. <laughs> um, I love the nuance that you gave in the role of a reporter, of going into the neighborhoods of kind of canvassing on a local level. And operationally, it does seem that reporters are getting mere snapshots of what's going on in communities. Yeah. Um, the way that reporting operates now, is that fueling how skeptical a lot of the masses are of the media and the reporter's role, as they're kind of jumping in, jumping out, and not really getting a true sense of what's going on on the ground? So the problem with parachuting into a community, staying for a couple hours, and then leaving, is it's sort of, it sort of dilutes your better instincts, and you tend to go for the shiny object rather than the regular. I always find the better story is just the normal thing that's happening. You know, th not the, the person that's dressed weird or the loudest person, but just the average scenario and the average situation. And you can't get that in two hours because you're on a deadline, and you have to hurry and get the story. And when you hurry to get the story, some, you, your instincts sometimes get blurred, and you sometimes go with the loudest or the most craziest or the most you know, different, because that's what catches your eye. And part of the, you know, another part of the problem is, is how many journalism jobs have been lost in the past 20 years. I mean, they don't even count anymore how many people are in newsrooms. They stopped counting in 2016. Uh, and, and the other problem with newsrooms is a lack of diversity. I'm not just talking about not enough minorities because there's not enough minorities in, in newsrooms, but there's also not enough people that come from a state school. There's not enough people that come from the zip codes in the center of the country. There's not enough people that grew up with a bl uh, blue collar background. There's not enough people that go to church on Sunday. There's not enough people who own a gun, you know, that, that go hunting or, you know, conceal carry for protection. Like, I, sometimes when I, when I watch how um, 
uh, the gun thing is covered after you know a tragedy. I'm blown away by how how much some reporters don't know the basics about a gun. I believe that you know if you're going to cover it, you better know it. Um, I have two questions. I'm sorry to ask you both at the same, but they're short. How did the polls get it so wrong? In the in the in the presidential election, and secondly, among his supporters, what what about the, his char the character issue with respect to him? I'll answer you the second question. Yeah, sure. Read the book. Um, <laughs> did I mention that yet? Okay, so I'll pick out. I'm going to pick out one that is a constant sort of befuddlement to a lot of people, evangelical and Catholic voters. In the book, the, this archetype, um, we call it the King Cyrus Christians. Does anybody know who King Cyrus was? Okay, he's the Persian king who led the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. The Persian king and the Israelites had nothing in common. But they trusted him because he had their back. And so that's how, um, uh, how I view these voters. You know, for years and years and years, Chamber of Commerce type Republicans and, and moderate rep Republicans, after a primary vote and the most religious person wins, they throw their hands up and say, Gee, can't they be more pragmatic? This guy's never going to win in a general, or this woman's never going to win in a general. Well, they decided in 2016 they were going to be pragmatic. They, they were going to be pragmatic with their vote. But Tony Perkins famously said nobody was listening because they were too busy, busy making fun of him to listen to what he said because it made sense to a lot of voters. It wasn't about shared values. It was about shared priorities. They decided that this guy was tough as hell and he was going to stand up for the things that were important to him. And they also decided that religious liberty um, and the protection of the Second Amendment was critically important and they believed that it was at risk for at least one or two generations if they did not at least put balance on the court and get a conservative in there. And after he came out with that list from this Federalist Society that showed the jurists that he would put on the Supreme Court, they made the decision that that's their guy. He might not do the same things that we do. He, I mean, come on. He called, he called communion crackers. And, and you know, he, was like, he said those little wafers, those little crackers in the wine, and something about Corinthians that I still don't understand. But they knew he had his back, and he has proven that over and over and over again. Oh, and pollsters, here's our problem, and I think everybody knows this, right? Uh, nobody has a land. Who has a landline here that uses it regularly? And if you have a landline, do you have caller ID? If you see an, a strange number, do you pick it up? I don't think so. So the problem is, is that you can't reach people in a diverse you know, a diverse amount of people. So what, what pollsters have started doing is doing modeling. What they didn't anticipate was that the model of 2008 and 2012 was going to be blown apart in 2016. Maybe you just answered this question, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. <clears throat> By the way, Norman Vincent Peale called it Second Corinthians, not Corinthians 2. Yes. <laughs> well, I think he said 2 Corinthians. That's correct. Yeah. That's what he did. Yeah. My question is... Norman Vincent Peale was from Pittsburgh. I beg your pardon? Norman Vincent Peale was from Pittsburgh. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just want to throw out the little black and gold there, just in this orange town. Was the, <laughs> was the marble the Marble Collegiate Church from uh, Pittsburgh also? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the question is, how do those who voted for Trump perceive that he is meeting their expectations? And maybe you should focus on the economic aspect of it, but that's essentially my question. 3.8%. 3.8%. What? That's the unemployment today. It's the lowest it's been since 1969. <coughs> tax reform, they love the tax reform. Um, they, they, you look, maybe 100 bucks might not a month or a, a paycheck might not mean a lot to some people, but sure means a lot to a lot of other people. That's, that's family vacation for the year. That's paying part of daycare. Um, that's fixing the part of their house. You know, there are people in this country who live paycheck to paycheck. They are only one a battery falling apart in their car, carburetor collapsing or their transmission going from, from economic disaster. Those little things matter. Uh, the, pick, the, the, Joris, the, um, the picking of Gorsuch, also incredibly important. Uh, the peeling back of regulations. Look at the manufacturing jobs that we were created last month. Just in last month alone, was, I believe it was 18,000. You know, those regulations are, do have an impact. Uh, the the the, um, the halting of closing the coal-fired uh, electric plants. Um, those are jobs. Those are communities. Those are lives. And and those are the things that he even North Korea. Even the way he's battled back and forth with them. You may not like him, but if you want to understand what's going on in the country, step back. Get out of your silo and pay attention. That's what the Great Revolt is about. It's not a Republican book or a Democrat book. It's a, it's a blueprint for understanding what's going on in the country. And it's an, I believe it's a really important one, not because I wrote it, but because we're in the middle of a movement and we're not listening to it. And that's not good. Well, speaking of the Great Revolt, if I understand what you're saying, this is this aspiration of the middle of the country and people in areas that feel economically neglected to gain back vita economic vitality. And so my question is, what do you think, how are they going to reshape not just politics but our economic structure in a context where globalization and the pressures from just the way our world is organized make it very unlikely that the kind of economic vitality they really aspire to is ever going to come back to these areas. So at, at what point is... It's not, that they, it's not about coming back. It's about slowing down the globalism. We've stopped talking about, and, and, and this is, I'm, I'm taking this from their point of view. We've stopped talking about America being first, Me America being the, the power. With President Obama, the decision was, you know what, let's, let's, let's form more alliances. Let's, let's do more things together. Let's not be the big guy all the time. And, and a lot of these voters didn't, didn't like this. Look, part of the problem right now, it, it's not just in politics, but it's also in every aspect of culture. It's in Hollywood, it's in sports, it's in corporate America, uh, you know, it's, all, it's on Wall Street, it's in Silicon Valley. Look where everyone is located. They're all in the super zip codes. We, they don't have the same, you aren't their neighbor. And the decisions that they're making on everything are from their point of view. 
Uh, not only do I think newsrooms need to be more diversified, but I also think corporations would be more, should be more diversified. A hundred years ago, Mr. Hoover lived in the same town that his vacuum cleaner was made. He went to the same church and his kids went to the same school. He understood his customers. And I think politicians, I think Hollywood, I think um, big government, and, and I think um, big business don't understand their customers because they don't live next door to them. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Selena Zito, journalist and co-author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Zito. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The forum is now over. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.